0: Hi, I'm Andy Hart of SPD Automotive and I'd like to welcome you all to the first in our series of case webinars. I know it seems strange to kick off a series about the future of the automotive industry when the industry is currently in the middle of a global crisis. But the reality is that while car sales and car production have come to a very sudden halt, planning and engineering teams are still out there having to make difficult decisions about what cars are going to look like in five to ten years time. So while we're all stuck at home and glued to our makeshift desks, we thought it would be a good time to sit back and reflect on where we're going as an industry. The author, Yugal Harari, who wrote the book Sapiens, was on the news a few days ago and was asked about his perspective on the COVID crisis. It was interesting to hear him speak about how the crisis is leading to an acceleration of history that has never been seen before. He gave the example of his university in Israel, which has been talking about setting up a few online courses for years and years, and how after the COVID virus hit, they were able to shift their entire university online within just a few weeks. It's still too early to tell how COVID will affect our industry in the longer term, but one thing that we've learned in the last few months is that change can happen much faster than we ever thought possible. Connected, autonomous, shared and electric cars have been at the epicenter of most OEM strategies for the last few years. Now seems as good a time as ever to assess how those strategies are progressing and where we might see an acceleration or deceleration of those efforts. So today we're going to focus on three questions what is case all about how far has the industry come and what's holding us back from achieving some of the goals to help us explore these questions i've got lee coleman and alan dunoyer both of whom head up large teams of experts within spd lee joined us after a long career working on connected cars at nissan and a telematic service provider while alan joined us from jaguar where he headed up r d teams um, looking into adas systems I'm going to start with you, Lee. Let's get a better understanding of what CASE means. If there's one thing our industry is very good at, it's making up acronyms. But what does it really mean to consumers and to different parts of the industry?
1: I think the first thing to point out with CASE is that these four areas are the fastest changing in automotive. And part of that pace of change is to meet consumer expectations. Consumer expectations of having their digital lives connected to their cars and not completely separate ecosystems, assisted driving, taking much more care of driver and passenger and other road users. For shared, this is partly about uh, the environmental effects of uh, using vehicles and producing them in the first place and looking for cleaner cities with uh, less congestion and electrification obviously to that end as well. As well as this, we're seeing uh, quite a a step change in the way that car makers view their own hierarchy of suppliers. Uh, More now than ever, car makers are collaborating with each other on these expensive to develop technologies and looking to differentiate on user experiences rather than core technologies. And that's making quite a difference in the way that OEMs view their partners and suppliers. So we're seeing a much more expansive network of companies and partnerships that goes way beyond
0: the traditional OEM hierarchy. Your team's been quite focused uh, on helping car makers deploy and monetize connected car services. Can you talk us through specifically what the drivers are for offering offering connectivity in cars?
1: Yeah, so I think this has changed over time. Uh, Initially, um, services were novel. Um, Connectivity offered um, several novel features that could attract new customers uh, particularly around safety security remote control of vehicles remote access to vehicles that in turn led to more standardization of those features um, as they came down the tiers of trim grades uh, and into lower segment vehicles OEMs sought to expand revenue streams by charging for those services either directly through options or even subscriptions as the services generated more and more data the industry's seen opportunities to uh, decrease costs uh, over-the-air updates are a great example of that where um, you know just maintenance of software in recalls can be handled in a much cheaper way that's, that's better for the consumer as well and the mission of most car companies is to engender great loyalty as well whether that's through uh, people getting their car service maintained, repaired um, in the franchise dealerships through the better connection that the car companies have and the dealers have um, through connectivity. Uh, or whether it's through the services being so useful to the consumer that they, when they're reconsidering another car coming off lease or making another purchase, if the services have been useful enough to them, the hope is that uh, those consumers will stay loyal to the brand.
0: So given that, where do you think the the bulk of the industry is today? Um, It's been 20 years since the first connected cars came onto the market. Where are most OEMs in their their kind of maturity scale? So that changes as you look
1: at, at OEM groups and confidence about offering attractive services that will expand revenue streams and provide that loyalty. Those who've been providing those services for longest have the most confidence in making that relationship between loyalty, revenue, cost reduction and attracting new customers build up into a very attractive model. Um, In markets where there's less maturity than that, I would point to China and India, the novelty of connected services is still about ticking lots of feature boxes. It's about having something that differentiates Uh, you from a competitor having some wow features in the vehicle. that can be advertised, talked about, experienced by car buyers. As the model matures though, the cost of putting that novelty into the car can be slightly offset by monetizing the data. Either by monetizing directly, selling uh, data to other parties with the customer consent, uh, generally for uh, adjacent industries like uh, leasing or insurance, or more uh, more confidently managing cost within the business um, and uh, keeping retention. But really importantly, the whole industry, regardless of where the OEM is on that maturity curve in which region, is aiming towards the services being as useful to the consumer as possible. I think that's the biggest lesson that's been learned over the last decade or so. The services will have novelty for a while, but if they're not useful to the customer in a genuine way, that's authentic to the brand ID the OEM is trying to reinforce uh, then the the whole balance of that connected offering uh, doesn't stack up so we're heading more towards services being super useful
0: and convenient to use it's interesting because in some ways I guess the, the kind of hype cycle around data monetization is getting to a sudden realization about um, the fact that it needs to be paired up with a good user experience I mean it wasn't that long ago that companies and, and individuals were talking about huge amounts of money being made by selling data from cars. At one point I even heard a statistic of um, being able to subsidise the entire cost of the car um, by selling data to third parties. What's happened to some of that discussion? Well, at SBD we've we've never
1: <laughs> joined in uh, the, the hype uh, behind those numbers. We We look at the needs of the value chain. So where are the use cases that need to be fed by data that can be collected from vehicles? Why are those use cases deficient in data today, uh, whether it's inside, automotive, or outside? And how can that data add more use or value to the use case that they're feeding? Um, so we we tend to approach the situation from a problem statement. Where does the problem exists? And how can vehicle data and connectivity help? And uh, a lot of the the value originates within the oem so it's cost reductions it's understanding the consumer life cycle better what's being used in the car what isn't what's valued and we're starting to see really interesting um, evolution of that now where services can be offered on demand features on demand you know the oems that have studied this the longest and have the most data about which services are being used understand the value at a point in time and a point of need um, for that particular service or feature now. So the value is certainly there. It's not enough to pay for the whole car, uh, sadly, as some of those early projections said, uh, but inevitably it pays a very large part in the OEM's understanding of their customer base uh, and how to make a product that's uh, much nicer to use and uh, will, it, it, if the mix is right, encourage spend on services that are really useful to the customer
0: so it's less of a direct money maker in that sense but more of a building block towards delivering better customer experiences across the entire ownership journey I guess
1: yeah if you if you look at um, journeys in in other verticals insights that can be gained from data about how services are being used who's using them and, where and when how this is how services become much more personalized to us Uh, whether we're streaming content buying stuff online um, those great services that that we rely on tend to know more about us and use that data to make uh, a better experience for us if my navigation system knows more about me i have to spend less time interfacing with it than than actually uh, using it Uh, i can have less stressful journeys if i can have services like predictive parking that allow me to pay without getting out of the car. It's simple. It's a simple little stack of a lot of tiny features that add up to a much more convenient life. And if, I can, if any consumer can save time, money, effort, stress, then the product has to be more appealing. And I think that's where the smart OEMs are really making good partnerships um, inside and outside automotive uh, to make those experiences better and uh, it, it's, it's the way of so many sectors um, I would say automotive has been a little behind the curve catching on to that but um,
0: catching up fast. So next week's webinar we're going to start looking in more detail around connectivity uh, so we'll kick off with Lee and some of his team in the meantime I wanted to move on to you Alan. talk us a little bit through what the key drivers are for automating cars.
2: Okay so vehicle autonomy is, is quite a broad uh, topic as it covers people transportation, but also goods uh, transportation and delivery. So, we, we turn ISBD to, to look at autonomy into three different layers. So, the first one being a personal vehicle. So, for personal vehicles, the driver is mainly safety, uh, but also now moving towards providing new productivity uh, opportunities uh, to the people in the car. The second uh, layer is shared vehicle or mobility as a service. And really here, the focus is about reducing the operating cost by, for example, uh, removing the need for a driver, as well as providing improved service coverage and uh, frequency. And the last one, uh, the third category is the optimization of goods delivery. Again, by reducing some of the costs associated with with it, but also optimizing the management of door to door delivery, Uh, just an example we in terms of uh, home shopping and, and uh, such things, we see more and more uh, certainly in Europe an expectation to have delivery within the hour of clicking. So that really dictates from a completely new approach to, to meet that uh, demand.
0: Sometimes it feels like the industry's got a slight split personality disorder when it comes to autonomous cars. Sometimes even within the same company they send out very different messages about what's a realistic expectation from a consumer's point of view in the next two or three or four years' time. What's your view about um, why this is happening and realistically how fast we're moving along that journey? So maybe uh,
2: again keeping the same three different layers. If we, if we talk uh, first passenger vehicles automation, it's been a reality for more than 20 years. I mean if you think about of ABS or traction control system which are now completely standardized and very common and um, those are the very early examples of, uh, of an automated system but since then things have moved on quite a lot and we are now entering a new level of vehicle autonomy and standardization and the focus certainly in the last uh, 10 to 15 years um, has been safety and avoiding a collision being the the ultimate goal uh, of the industry and Organizations such like Euro NCAP have been very, very influential in making sure that OEMs are fitting more and more technologies, uh, such as collision avoidance. What we see also in the, the more expensive segments, uh, we are starting to move towards the next level, the higher level of, uh, of autonomy, uh, where the driver is still in charge at all time. That's a very, very important condition. But the braking, the acceleration, and the cornering of a car is largely automated. So we are very much at the beginning of a new phase where maybe in a couple of years, you might be able to uh, stop monitoring and being in charge of a car at all times. So that's something that is is likely to happen uh, either later this year or early next year uh, within some uh, premium OEMs where we get to the, the much higher level of autonomy. So that's for passenger vehicle, which is one category. When we talk about shared vehicle and shared automation, here the automation can help reducing operating costs. For example, no the driver, but you would need teleoperation. So you need like a control room that can remotely monitor and potentially control uh, the different pods. But it's also about improving service coverage and frequency. Um, and that, we can see two main use cases to cover this. The first one is the the last mile to uh, join maybe one transportation hub from another. So maybe as an example, you might be arriving at a train station and you want to go to the city center, and you just jump onto a pod that takes you there. So really, those um, use cases um, are where maybe the public transportation system is not as good as maybe it should be. Um, Similarly, you have round loop to a service community or gated community. The other aspect or the other typical use case is to operate a fleet of fully autonomous vehicle. And that's really about providing some new mobility services within the city, typically. And typically it would be a service on demand where you've been picked up where you currently are and you've been dropped off at your desired destination. And finally, for, for goods, uh, transportation, the, the two main use cases are the last mile delivery from a local shop, for example. So it's we've already seen lots of um, proof of concept and even trials where uh, within a mile you've got a, like a warehouse that can deliver goods within a um, a mile radius of the uh, the warehouse. The last one is truck platooning, and that's probably the one we're going to see um, first at some scale. It's probably the more mature one. Uh, Truck for long distance, and that is really just for heavy goods uh, transportation. Lee,
0: if we um, move now on to shared mobility, um, it's kind of a spectrum of services and business models that spans from all the way from e scooters to, to the autonomous shuttles that Alan was just talking about. Can you talk us through what's driving this explosion of localized shared mobility services uh, and how you see it eventually merging with some of those trends towards autonomous vehicles?
1: Yeah, there are a number of drivers behind this, uh, this trend. The, the first being uh, the cost of vehicle ownership and inconvenience, particularly in cities, about parking those vehicles and the expense of, of keeping the car. And then the environmental impacts of having lots of vehicles in the city, the congestion impact, are, looking, are all creating a need for us to reconsider the way that uh, we move, particularly in urban environments. I think the most schemes started uh, by providing access to non-car owners with alternative modes of transport to um, uh, to public transport. Useful if you need to be doing a large shopping trip or if you're visiting a city away from home. Or if you just want to use a vehicle uh, for an hour or two, no point in paying for a traditional rental for a whole day. The attraction of uh, making movement around cities has been encouraged by some city planners and it's enabled those operating the services to reduce their bricks and mortar and staffing investments to a more of a self-service model. The difficulty um, that the uh, uh, the, the shared mobility schemes uh, face is a high level of fragmentation. Whether it's about the modes of transport that are on offer or the physical locations, of the vehicles, uh, a lack of ubiquity uh, from city to city let alone country to country. At the moment uh, it's difficult for a uh, someone wanting to use these services to make multimodal journeys. Some providers are addressing that need so Google Maps now allows you to select or at least plan journeys um, in multimodal form and several city planners are trying to group together ecosystems of Uh, service operators to make multimodal possible but it's still incredibly fragmented and while that fragmentation exists uh, there's a lack of data that can inform those services to be more
0: intelligent. Since the outbreak of of Covid um, we've seen some of these services um, shutting down, most of these services have to shut down to some level. Um, Some of these startups have laid off some of their, their, their staff members, there seems to be a kind of a tightening of that opportunity what do you guys think is going to be the longer term effect on shared mobility of of the covid virus
1: well i think the the, the initial uh, phases of lockdown people didn't want to share their space let alone uh, another uh, vehicle with someone so the the it was a it was a very uh, predictable reaction i guess if you're asking people to isolate or keep 2 meters distance away from one another they, uh, there's there's going to be less appetite to to share vehicles or even even scooters. However, groups of the population have uh, had to continue paying for their own vehicles, whether it's lease or paying off loans, uh, insurance costs and so on. Um, The asset that sits on our driveway or in our garage starts to take on a a slightly different look. So I think post-virus, people will be readdressing their spending habits. We're already seeing Car companies and lease companies launch more flexible leases. And I think shorter, more flexible access to vehicles is, is going to uh, accelerate uh, on the back of uh, this pandemic.
0: And do you think there'll be any changes to how some of these startups and um, some of the bigger companies manage their share mobility services?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think we'll, we'll see some impact and we'll, we're starting to see it. So maybe in the short term, uh, we can expect more startups to uh, to disappear uh, more quickly or be acquired, uh, as finding investments may become more difficult. But also, I think the attitude towards shared mobility and 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 you know, joining what Liz just mentioned, we will probably shift more towards a, a product space rather than a shared uh, environment. So I think we can expect to shift towards more personal pods um, is is likely in in, in the future, uh, in terms of consumer preferences. This also means that operators of such automated fleets uh, will need to demonstrate even more than before that they can keep the pods interior clean uh, at all times, uh, or at least between, between journeys. So far, one of the uh, emphasis was to make sure that, for example, spillage can be detected and then the pods interior can be cleaned before the next customer comes. We may have to even think now about deep clean uh, procedures so that Things like COVID-19 can be uh, guaranteed not to be present in in the pod. So there are technologies for that, but um, this is very, very much the the beginning of it.
0: I guess what one of the things that's been interesting over the last couple of months is seeing how information becomes more important um, and to to reassure people uh, about the direction that some of these issues is is moving towards. Um, I wonder if there's going to be a greater importance placed on um, sharing information about those shared vehicles and when they were last maintained and last cleaned uh, to help give confidence to, to consumers. Because unlike a dirty car or a car that has um, been damaged by the previous users, something like a virus is very difficult to uh, <laughs> to tell whether a vehicle has been cleaned or not. So it could it give an opportunity to uh, to companies to find new ways of reassuring people, users?
2: Yes, I think if companies can demonstrate they have procedures in place uh, and also being independently audited and having like a a seal of approval by an independent organization would certainly go a long way in in making sure that the public is kind of reassured that the right thing are being uh, being done. Um, But that's very much uncharted territory, so there's probably a new industry there that needs to be created.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, For years now I've been going to CES and every year there's a portion of the startup hall um, and a few other kind of areas within CES that focus on wellness of, of ambient technologies and being able to kind of clean the air around you. And it always felt relatively niche um, because it didn't feel like that many people were that fussed about whether their air was purified. Uh, but I can imagine a lot of that technology now will become even more important.
2: Yeah, well, you're entirely, I mean, the, the cabin interior quality, the air quality, the light quality is something that... Uh... Traditional OEMs have been doing some action in that space. Many of the premium OEMs now you can get fragrance and other things in cars. But I think right, I mean, with the um, with COVID-19 and what's currently happening, uh, there'll be a lot more focus in, in terms of how can you make sure that the, uh, the interior of a car or the pod is um, is clean. Yeah, absolutely. So that brings us round to the E in case. Um... Lee, in
0: many ways, electrification's been kind of the most widely understood shift in the industry, isn't it?
1: Yes, I think so. in, in in many respects, it's been widely understood. Everyone understands that uh, the, the the clean energy impact uh, of electric vehicles, particularly in cities, again, uh, can can have great benefits. I think what's what's taken uh, consumers a little bit more time to get up to speed with is the realities of charging, um, overcoming. Uh, range
0: anxiety, and really understanding how to get the best out of an EV. Mm. And do you think, I mean, we've seen some incredible scenes over the last week around the oil market going negative um, because of the the kind of surplus of supply. Do you think that's going to affect at all the longer term viability of electric vehicles? Will it change the the pace at which the industry moves? Uh, There's no doubt that the industry is uh, spending
1: uh, large amounts of R&D and uh, production dollars on uh, migrating from ICE vehicles to EV. Uh, There's a clear pull from consumers. Depending on how you calculate it, we're still not at price parity uh, between EV and ICE. I think there needs to be higher acceptance of uh, EV by, by local councils and governments around the world to help people arrange more charging points at their place of work, their place of home. Um, but inevitably, the industry has to move towards uh, a stronger EV fleet.
2: Carbon emission and pollution reduction targets are a clear a driver, and can be achieved in a number of ways. So, uh, the um, the solution in the short to medium term is not necessarily going to be be going fully electric, um, but but clearly this is uh, this is happening. Now, I think with COVID-19, it's also possible that people will work a lot more from home in the future. So, we may experience a mechanical reduction of, of carbon emissions due to the, the new working habits. So, people may still travel, but may favor shorter distances. And if that really happens, then the, the need and the type of vehicles they, they will need in the future uh, might be a little bit different from what was so far um, expected.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because, as you say, Alan, there's so many different Dynamics at play now between consumers changing their habits. Also, governments will have to change their policies to some extent. I'm guessing um, if there's been so much cutbacks on on businesses, um, they may start to deregulate uh, certain areas and and at the very least delay some of the targets that they'd set. Um, so with all of this kind of up in the air, it's going to be very interesting to see whether the kind of positive drivers for electrification outweigh the negative drivers. Alan, there's also some other kind of um, technical drivers I guess for new platforms within the industry linked to autonomous vehicles um, do you want to share a little bit around um, how new platforms are also being used as a way to introduce new electrical um, architectures within the car that can support some of these new features
2: so yeah so we, we see a number of converging uh, sort of trends so there's electrification but there's also uh, more and more um, ADAS and autonomy in the car, which means that the electrical architecture needs to, to move significantly from where we are now. And from a very, um, I would say, a, a patchwork network of, of ECU, you, we are moving slowly but surely towards aggregation of ECUs and very large domain ECUs. And that goes um, well with the electrification of vehicles as well, because you f- think you have less components. Um, so you can simplify your electrical architecture e- even further. So it is quite possible that the um, the, the two platforms from a nice and the, uh, an, an EV will potentially converge in in terms of uh, electrical layout and electrical architecture. What we saw mm. is that for EVs to um, maybe to have more of a of a business case in terms of autonomy autonomy uh, sp- specifically, having a platform that is single usage is quite limiting so what you have to do really is is have a, a very generic platform that can serve multi-purpose um, use cases so it could be a, a platform that does people transportation but can also do cargo transport um, and if you have that kind of um, flexibility that makes your, your business case for those platform a lot, a lot stronger and the utilization of those platform can be um, well close to 247 um, seven, eventually.
0: So that's case in a nutshell. It's the biggest change to, to both the customer experience and the way our industry operates really since Henry Ford revolutionized mass manufacturing. So during the next five episodes, we're gonna go deeper into defining these different phases that the industry is going through in order to deliver the case transformation. But I'd like to get from both of you, before we end today, a quick takeaway on where you think um, the focus is gonna be for the industry Moving forward, and what are some of the challenges that we need to overcome as an industry um, to enable case? Alan, do you want to kick us off with, with your view of what, what some yeah. of those barriers are?
2: So, for autonomy, I can see two major um, hurdles, uh, say. So, the first one is certainly legislation on homologation re- requirements and how long this is going to take before they are fully formalized. For SE level three, um, just to remind um, What it is, it's basically a fully autonomous vehicle where the driver doesn't need to supervise the machine all the time, but the driver is there as a backup. So, if the machine needs to uh, handle the control, the driver needs to be able to do that. So, AC level three, we are very, very close, just around the corner. The homologation is expected to to become available uh, later this year. But how do we move from a level three to a level four in terms of homologation and legislation is is, is something that is still um, somewhat unclear. The other aspect is, and that's a really difficult one for all manufacturers, is the ability to demonstrate that as you move towards higher level of autonomy, uh, where the driver supervision eventually will disappear altogether, how do you guarantee that that system is safe enough? How do you define safe enough? Uh, This is very much an unanswered question in the industry, and there are many, many different opinions and views on on what's safe enough could be or should be and having established that uh, how do you demonstrate this so there's a lot of work there to to be done
0: what about you what's your kind of summary on case and where do you think are some of the key pitfalls that the industry is going to have to navigate around so i'm going to
1: focus my comments mainly on uh, the c and the s uh for connected services uh i i think that there's needs to be a a genuine uh, addressing of the consumer need for more convenience Uh, this is being answered by other verticals um, working together and I think we're going to see a lot more collaboration between uh, car makers and what could be perceived as threats from consumer electronic, those that know most about our digital lives if you get true convenience and true creativity in use cases um, there needs to be uh, a, a working together it can't be single brand thinking so the the challenge there is going to be making sure the ecosystems can work together and there can be a level of differentiation that the uh, that the brands can offer. On the shared mobility, uh, again, this is de- this depends heavily on collaboration between operators in the shared mobility space. Matching up demand with need is the biggest challenge that uh, that that part of the industry faces, and really we need a, a super broker or a facility for Uh, Those with demand customers wanting to make journeys to share that information in a way that can be understood by service providers in real time, uh, as well as looking historically. So I think in both cases, it's about the operators of the services having consumer consent to access of data um, with the consumer's convenience at the heart of
0: any model that's put forward. That's great. I want to thank both you and, and Alan, really, for sharing your insights today. Um, and I want to invite everyone who's, who's listening in to join us next week. Our topic's going to be connectivity, and we're going to be going deeper into some of these areas that Lee's been talking about. Um, why has it been harder for car makers to monetize data, uh, and is it going to get any easier? Why are there so many disconnected cars out there, and what does the industry need to do to shift from making cars to successfully operating services? And what does it mean practically to offer personalized services? And why is it potentially so important for the future of the industry? We're going to be joined again by Lee next week, and he's going to bring along Jack Palmer, who's got a lot of hands-on experience in areas like data monetization. So we hope you've enjoyed the first webinar in our case study series and look forward to seeing you again next week.